When someone dies, we host a funeral and it's often held at a church and the casket is brought to the front near what is sometimes called the altar and people will come to the front of the church, pay their respects to the dead and then leave. And then that weekend in that same building at that same church, that same structure at that same altar, the gospel will be proclaimed and some people will come and give their lives to Jesus Christ and the old sinful self dies right there at the altar. Pay your respects to the dead at the altar and get up and then you walk out alive for the first time. It fascinates me that we do this thing at the altar where both churches will host, host funerals where we commemorate the dead and then altar calls, revivals, gospel invitations where the dead come to life. And they both happen in the same place. Churches are fascinating. In light of this text, in the presence of this holy God, we will observe the same practice. We will pay our respects to the dead and walk out alive. There are people who came, you came in here, you walked somehow. It's remarkable because you're dead. It's fascinating. I mean, you were able to drive a car. Dead. Right? You, you woke up dead. You got in your car dead. You drove here dead. You chose your seat strategically dead all the while. And you're actually about to come to life because the person who walked in here was a sinner, but the one who will leave will be saved. I believe it in Jesus' name. Now, here's what's, here's what's kind of interesting about the course of this weekend. This sermon will be recorded and shown during our 9.30 and 11.10 services, all right? And so I want you Saturday night service to light a fire that grows to a blaze, 9.30 and 11.10 tomorrow, amen, Saturday night? Amen. All right, 9.30 and 11.10, you guys don't know this crowd. They are rowdy. <laughs> right. There are also a lot of pastors in the room. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, there are also a lot of people from staff at other churches come and worship with us Saturday night because this is their chance to come be ministered to and come worship, all right? Would you guys thank the pastors of local churches that come and join us right here? <laughs> pastors and staff members at local churches, we are, uh, we, are, we are blessed to have you with us, all right? And I feel the pressure when you're here. <laughs> Preaching to pastors is scary work. This text is 2 Timothy chapter 2. It begins on page 995 in the Bibles and the seats with you. This is Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy. It's the final book recorded in the Bible that was written by Paul. He is bound in chains in Mamertine prison awaiting execution. But as he wrote in verse nine, the word of God itself is not bound. Those chains that held Paul back did not hold the word of God back. Paul knew as he faced execution that the very words he shared while he was enchained in Mamertine prison would escape Mamertine prison, go to the churches, be preserved in his letters, 
be published in the Bible as we call it today and preserved for the rest of human history that we are reading here and now. So the very fact that we're able to read Paul's prison letters at all proves that the contents of these letters are true. Paul wrote these in the most unlikely setting imaginable. If you were to see a prisoner chained up in a jail cell saying the whole world is going to hear from the ministry of my protege Timothy, the spirit is speaking through me right now to write words, the whole world will hear, you would think of that prisoner as utterly delusional. But Paul was absolutely right because here we are in the year 2019 reading his letter I don't know about you, but having our hearts changed by it. Anybody else been blessed by 2 Timothy? It's instructions for how church works, how to do church. And these instructions are timeless. It's the description of of a corrupt and debaucherous culture. And that culture is very much like our culture today. These instructions for how church works don't have an expiration date. It's fascinating. We interpret them in light of their original historical cultural context. But in in much of 2 Timothy, there's not much hermeneutical work to be done. Meaning like there's, there's not a whole lot of interpretive lens to be applied. Because some of it just at face value reading right off the page is directly instructive for today, right here and now, and including much of the text that, you're, that we're gonna cover in this, in this chapter, in verses one through, one through 13 uh, of chapter two, the same passage covered by our small group curriculum. To that end, you'll, you'll see ways in which this, this text has influenced how we function as a church, as Highlands Community Church. Again, this is not a drill. How foolish it would be of us to, to study this, this manual on how to do church and exegete it and, and discuss it and then not actually live it out ourselves, not actually apply it ourselves. All right, to read the instruction manual and not follow the instructions means you didn't really grasp what you were reading. All right, to fully grasp the instruction manual means you're actually gonna implement what it instructs. When I started off, when I started off in ministry, it was at Heritage Baptist Church in Pensacola, Florida. And my student ministry was just a handful of kids in the very beginning, just, just like a few students on these concrete floors with, with couches that somebody was trying to throw away. And just one guy running things initially. My, my bride used to call it the Jesse Campbell Show. I go to this building, watch Jesse, you know, replace the floodlight lamps on the outside of the building and dig the trench to lay the conduit to hook it up. <laughs> and then and watch Jesse turn the building on, watch Jesse fire up the sound booth, watch Jesse run from the sound booth to the front and tune his guitar by ear and not quite do it right. <laughs> watch Jesse lead worship songs, set his guitar down, pick his Bible up, preach the word, get down from the stage, counsel the students, all right, fix the toilet, shut the building down, lock it up, you know, and then give, one of the, give, give somebody a ride home if they needed it. That was, that was what she called. It was amazing. She would sit and she would just watch me just run all around this building doing everything. It was very clear what I needed. You know, during those days, you know, you know the, the most we could ever really grow to and stay there was about 12 kids. Can you think of anybody else who 
discipled 12 people. It, it's, almost, it's almost as though there's a biblical precedent. It's almost as though like the, the only perfect human who ever lived chose to disciple 12 people and one of them wanted to murder him. There's only so many people that you individually can adequately disciple. And when I was the youth pastor who did everything in the student ministry, when I was under that impression, like, okay, these students and their parents, they pay tithe dollars so that I can come here and minister to them. I do the work of ministry, and that's my job to minister to them. So I'm going to do that. And that was the way that I, that's the way that I approached it. And it wasn't until I realized that was actually sort of backwards that our ministry began to grow. Rather, rather, what we'll see tonight as we, as we study this text and what, what else Paul writes in Ephesians was, is that actually, actually, the students themselves, they were to do the work of ministry and I was here to equip them to do it. And if I'm honest, it was difficult for me because I would have like half my face painted for the football game for my student who was on the football team and then I would have like my chest painted with the number of one of my, one of my guys who was in, a, in like another sport. And so I would, I would go and like, yeah, like cheer for Caleb and then put my shirt up and then yeah, cheer for Travis. And then I would wash my face in the concession stand bathroom sink. And then I would go sit quietly in the front row and watch the drama department do their final run through the play and get up and do the standing ovation to Sierra. And then I would get in my beat up old 91 Mustang and go to the Whataburger across the street. Whataburger is a hamburger place, by the way. I would go and hang out with students and disciple them. And, and if, I, if, if I'm brutally honest, which I kind of am all the time, it makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I liked being a superhero to these teenagers. I liked the Jesse Campbell show. I liked the fact that all these kids, I, I knew every one of their names, I knew their pets' names, I knew what they wanted to major in in college. I knew everything about every student. And they looked at me like I was this superhero with a beat up old car. And it, it wasn't until the Lord convicted me through this book and the book of Ephesians that Jesse, you've got to take the Superman S off of your chest and you've got to give it to others. You've got to give it to leaders. And then you pour into the leaders. Leaders pour into Students, equip them for leadership and the students reach out to other students and then there's no limit to how you can grow. And so I called this team of leaders the heroes. And you're just now really hearing the reason that I called them the heroes. It was, it was because out of personal conviction, I realized like I was making myself the hero of the ministry and really I needed to make heroes of other people. And so I, I asked God, give me 25 heroes. Because I did the math, I mean, we had a zero dollar budget and the church secretary told me, look, Jesse, if, if what you do could make money, that would really help. <laughs> it's me and like 12 teenagers that don't have jobs. God, if one leader can disciple 12 people, then that means that 10 leaders could disciple 120 students. And so I thought, like, how many leaders could I could I pour into? How many leaders could I adequately manage? Divide up, dividing them up into teams. God, how, how many leaders could I pour into to do ministry? And I said, God, if you give me 25 heroes, we will blow the doors off this place. And God did it. He brought me 25 heroes and he blew the doors off the place. All on a zero dollar budget. 
with the same couches. <laughs> God taught me incredible things. It was a blessed thing to equip other people for ministry, watch them do the work of ministry, and then watch the, watch the roof just blow up. I mean, oh, it's so incredible. Nothing, nothing fills your heart more than a once empty concrete room packed out with students and a nervous fire marshal. And they're not here for fun and games and shooting cocoa puffs out of their nose, all right? We were teaching verse by verse through Revelation with middle school boys present, all right? And we grew as a ministry. It was incredible. It was incredible, but it was necessary that I first learn this scriptural lesson and take the Superman S off of my chest Right, and equip other people to do the work of ministry that we saw God bring incredible, incredible growth. Right? Pastor Jesse, I don't like where you're going with this. I don't like this direction. Because what you're saying has implications. I like coming to church and I like, I like it when, when the music is good and I like it when your stories are funny and I like it when I learn interesting historical factoids that I didn't know before or new angles in the text that I hadn't considered before. I like that. But this has implications. This, this, this has implications. This, this means you're putting me to work. And I, I don't appreciate that, Pastor Jesse. <laughs> Listen, look, if you, if you suspect in your heart that this text, that this sermon is going to ask something of you and put you to work, you're absolutely right. Welcome to Highlands Community Church. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. And if you're wondering, like, why are you not getting that much out of church? Because church isn't about you. <laughs> All right? If you walk away from worship saying, I didn't really get anything out of that. Good. It wasn't you. We were worshiping. <laughs> it was God. And the role of the church is to serve as the body of Christ. Every one of us has been given unique spiritual gifts. And when all those gifts come together, they complement one another perfectly so that we would embody the work of Christ here and there. This is part of the reason for communion. Why remember the body of Christ, acknowledging the body of Christ? This is the whole, this is much of the, this is the whole point behind 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. This is, this is much of the impetus behind many of the New Testament letters. This is actually the reason why you're here. And so if you suspect that this book will put you to work, you're absolutely correct. And then you're going to get more out of church, incidentally. Because here's what you're going to get out of church. You're going to get a role, a spiritual role to fulfill. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 with me. Paul writes to Timothy, you then, my child, remember the background there, remember the context, remember the story of Timothy, how much that meant to him. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See that? See what Paul just told Timothy to do? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share over the, a share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. All right, if you didn't follow that, he just gave these three different metaphors all around the same idea. We'll come back and unpack those. Verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Man, 13 very potent verses, amen? Let's go back. Let's look at each piece here. In verses 1 and 2, opening salutation, you then, my child. This, this, this draws from the opening salutation of the letter itself, in which Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith, his beloved child in verse two of chapter one, his child right here in, in verse one of chapter two, telling him to be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that's crucial. He has already demonstrated to Timothy what he wants Timothy to emulate later. Remember, we talked about this last week as well. You may not have a way with words. It may be difficult for you to articulate exactly what you want your disciple to do, your Timothy to do. But what Paul is doing here is basically just saying, do the thing that I did. What you saw in me, do that. Okay, put it into practice. If, you, if, you're, not, if you're not much of a talker, that's okay. All right, the way that the way you can teach somebody how to, how to fix a car is to you know, put them on one of those sliding creepers as well and they boat, you slide up under there together and just watch what I do, do this. Watch what I do, do this. Whenever I do ministry, you're right there with me. It goes like this, do what I do. When I do ministry, you're there with me. That's, that's a picture of discipleship. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is critical, that is critical. That hit me right between the eyes as a young youth pastor, realizing that I wasn't equipping anybody for ministry. I was doing all the ministry myself. And what I was instructed to do, as I inherit this letter that was written originally to Timothy, is to, it is to equip others, to entrust others to be able to teach too. All right, here's Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. In describing some of the spiritual gifts that God gives to the church, Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I want to read that again because that is that that can cause an absolute paradigm shift in the way that you see the church and understand what the church is. To equip the saints, right? That's you for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
right, it is the job of these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip saints to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried, out, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is how the church works, in which apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers equip you, the saints, for the works of ministry, and then we all do what God has called us to do, and we grow up into unity in Christ. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul was writing this, by the way, to the church at Ephesus, the same church to whom Timothy ministered. Timothy was pastor at the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians from which I just read, which we will study next after our series in the pastoral epistles, was written to the same believers. It's instructions on how church works. And I've read the book of Ephesians before, I'd read 2 Timothy before, but for some reason, as a young pastor sitting there in my office with the weird deer wallpaper that I inherited from the previous guy who had that office, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I am doing church completely wrong. This, this is worth reiterating if you already understand it. It's worth repeating because this is, this is often what I, what I saw in my previous work at, at Lifeway Christian Resources in Nashville and, and speaking at conferences and working with churches nationwide. They often don't understand this. They don't get this basic tenet of how the church works. Right? In, in the context of the church, it's not whoever stands right here who does the work of ministry. It is all of us who do the work of ministry. It is whoever stands here whose job is to equip all of us to do those works. You come to church to be equipped to go do works of ministry. Now, I don't want to like teach the book of Ephesians before I teach the book of Ephesians. But chapter two gets some exciting words about exactly this, that God and sovereignty has already prepared ahead of time. Oh, doesn't that blow your mind? God, who exists outside of time in his sovereignty, has already prepared good works for each of us to do. Oh, that's incredible. That's, that's why the Christian comes to church, to be equipped for the work of service. Now, my skeptical friend, I haven't forgotten about you. All right, you, the dead body in the seat, all right, verse 11 is coming. All right, verse 11 is coming. You likewise have within you latent gifts, which we will see God fan into flame. Look at verse three. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I'll, I'll never forget meeting this young woman whose mother had just died and who wanted more than anything to do ministry. Like she wanted to speak at women's events and she wanted to write devotionals and she wanted to be a camp counselor and, and, and her mother passed away and there was nothing anybody could ever say to make, just to make her feel momentarily better about any of that. And, and I, I didn't feel remotely up to the task but this verse is actually the only thing that would give her any degree of consolation 
to share in suffering. To share in suffering. All right, if you come upon somebody who is deeply bereaved and stricken with grief and in deep pain, all right, here, here's just, here's some, here's some thoughts, right? Don't, don't tell them it's okay because it's, it's not okay. All right, when you meet like this young 17-year-old woman whose mother has just died, okay, like don't tell her it's okay. That is not okay. That is horrific, that is terrible, that is tragic, and she is devastated. And also, don't say to somebody who's just lost somebody near them, look, God won't give you more than you can handle. All right, I understand the heart and the intent and where that comes from. All right, I'm sure that I said that same cliche at some point over the years. But having experienced lost firsthand, I've, I've come to see like, oh no, no, my friend, like this is me not handling what God is giving me right now. What we're coming from when we quote that vaguely is sort of like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that when you're tempted, God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, it provide a way for you to stand up under it. All right, that God, he won't let you be tempted. Like no temptation has seized you except for what is common to man. We sort of take in a variation on 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and applied it to grief. And it's not, it's not quite fitting. It doesn't quite match up. It's not really what that verse is for. That applies to temptation to commit sins. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we could bear. That has to do with temptation. It says nothing about grief, pain, trial, loss, difficulty. Rather, what we see in the biblical narrative is God's people doing exactly the right thing and being thrown in the furnace. But then what else do we see? He is in there with them. So this, this young woman who lost her mother, this verse was the only consolation. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There are some things that no cliche could ever solve. There are some situations that are, that are so intensely grievous that there's no, there's no set of words that you could say that would make that person's heart feel better. That this is one of the downsides. This is, this is one of the dangers of prosperity teaching is that somebody like Job would do everything right and then experience blessing and then like Job be targeted by the devil for a testing of faith and because they were never taught the whole counsel of God, they have no idea how to respond when they come under intense demonic attack and their loved ones die and everything is stripped away from them because they were under the impression that good behavior merited good things from God and they didn't know the biblical narrative that would tell them at at moments like these, share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That word soldier may be the operative word. You mistook the church for a cruise ship a place that exists to entertain you with a nice comfy spa on the lower deck, a pool on the Lido deck, 24 hours of pizza and ice cream. No, 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 this is not a cruise ship. This is a warship and you are its soldiers. Do you see that? Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ. Imagine the cruiser with the fanny pack and the sandals and the dash of sunscreen down the nose being handed a weapon and being given his marching orders. But I have an excursion booked. (laughs) That's the same shock that may be taking place in your heart right now because you didn't know what the church was. You are the church. (laughs) 
You are the saint to be equipped for works of ministry. Yes, work. Yes, you are to share in suffering. Yes, suffering like a soldier. Yes, a soldier of Christ Jesus. Man, if you're like I was when I was a young man and I read this for the very first time, it just totally turned upside down my understanding of the church and what the church is. Now, verse three, verse three reminds me as well of, of the previous chapter. This is actually the second time in this letter that Paul has given Timothy some reminder to share in suffering. In the eighth verse of the previous chapter, he wrote, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That for the gospel part is important. Not all suffering is necessarily for the gospel. Sometimes we make mistakes and then we suffer consequences. But sometimes we make proclamations of the gospel and offends people who have power over us and then we suffer. That is the kind of suffering that Paul is describing here. So two times in two chapters, Paul has exhorted Timothy to share in suffering for the cause of the gospel. All right, suffer for the gospel like a soldier of Christ. Man, sometimes that's the only ministry that'll get you through something is just to persevere in suffering. It doesn't make a very good Hallmark card though. <laughs> Suffer. In beautiful gold glittery cursive over sepia toned sunset with a lazy fishing dock. <laughs> Suffer. Period. <laughs> Sign it. <laughs> but sometimes uh, there's somebody here who needs to hear that. There's somebody here who needs to hear that. You've been given your marching order. Somebody shoved a weapon in your hand and gave you, gave you this order. You're like, wait, 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 wait. This is not how the Christian work. Christian walk goes. Yes, it is exactly, exactly what God has called you to do. This is, these are your marching orders. This is what you have been called to do. I've, I have suffered for the cause of the gospel. I'm calling you into the exact same fight. I welcome you into this. This may be what God has called you to do. Sometimes the best ministry you can do is just persevere in suffering and consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that this testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This may be the very first step into spiritual maturity for you, realizing that God doesn't always call us to cruises. Sometimes he does, congratulations when that's you. But sometimes he calls us to suffer for the gospel like a soldier of Christ Jesus. Now verses four through seven, let's talk about these metaphors. All right, he lifts up three different biblical metaphors and they're metaphors that he has employed before. And he's calling Timothy to be a pastor who does not get entangled with every possible controversy within the church, okay, but to focus on the larger calling for the sake of his church in verse, in verse four. He's calling Timothy to lead a life of personal holiness and integrity. In verse five, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Right, Timothy? Lead a life of personal holiness and integrity. You gotta follow the rules if you want the trophy at the end. In verse seven, all right, the Jesse Campbell translation says, work stinking hard to earn your salary. 
Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It is, in verse six, he said, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have a first share of the crops. He is drawing upon imagery that he has used in previous writings to Timothy to just encapsulate and then remind Timothy of them, right? That the, 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 the soldier and the civilian affairs don't get entangled in every single controversy within the church, but focus on the larger calling for the sake of the church. Lead a life of personal holiness and integrity, like an athlete who passes his drug test, right? All right, work hard like the farmer who can get the first share of his crops. Work hard as a pastor to earn your salary, Timothy. He's exhorting him not to be entangled, to be holy with integrity and to work really hard. All right, that, that is my interpretation of these three rapid fire metaphors that come in verse four through seven. And verse 11, my skeptical friend, this is your moment. Verse 11 can you tell I've been excited about this verse the entire sermon? The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. We are considered co-heirs with Christ through the power of the gospel. And for that reason, he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his own children any more than he could deny himself. So look at these, look at these couplets, these four phrases. Right? If we have died with him, we will also live with him. All right, I'm gonna come from Romans 6 to explain what I believe that means to die with Christ. If we endure we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. Do you see the negative turn that he takes at, at, at the third couplet to deny Christ? He will also deny us. And then, second negative if statement, if we are faithless, but then look at how it ends. He remains faithful. Some of you can can attest to that. There have been times when you haven't been faithful to God. You've not stood by his word. You've lived in disobedience to him. You've let sin crop up in your life and you've fallen short of the glory of God. And you've let things live in your life that you know are subpar compared to what God has actually called you to do. You've forsaken your true identity in Christ for identity that's more comfortable. You've forsaken what God has called you to do for something that may have been maybe more lucrative or less scary and more, and just, and you're just more comfortable, less awkward socially, more acceptable culturally, right? There may be things in your life that you've just, you've been faithless to God, but all the while he has been faithful to you. Would you take a moment if you never have before to catalog all the times that you've been faithless to God and realize that he has been faithful to you all the while? Poor Hosea, the prophet of old, his whole life even his marriage itself is to be one big picture of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. That his own bride, who be preordained, would forsake him. And then he, just as God did for Israel time and time again, would take her back over and over again as a, as a picture, a marital picture of the faithfulness of God, despite the faithlessness of his people at times. Just think about all those seasons when you wandered away from what God called you to do. God didn't move. 
Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Now, what of verse 11? If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Right, Pastor Jesse, what in the world are you talking about? Naming funerals and things like this. What, what in the world are you saying? Here's Romans chapter six, verse one through 14 in the Christian Standard Bible. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too may we walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Man, who's ready for an all-night study of Romans now? Ah, those are fighting words from the Bible. Pay your respects to the old sinful you Leave the dead man in his casket at the altar and walk out alive in Christ. Repent from sin. All of it. Leave the old addicted self right here. And straighten your tie and then go do the work of ministry that God has called you to do. No more, Christian. No more playing dead. Lazarus was called by Jesus and he came out of his grave. That was you the day you were saved, Christian. And my skeptical friend, that's you right now. That the Holy Spirit of God would draw upon your heart, call you by name and say, Romans 6 is about you. That your sin has killed you, but God's drawing you to life right here and now. So pay your respects to the dead. And then go do the work that God has prepared for you to do. No more of this. No more. No more living in a sin that you know doesn't live up to God's standards for you. No more compromising with the devil himself. You will always lose that deal. All right? Leave your sin here. Raise your knife to your sin and let God do the rest. Pay your respects to the dead. And then go Share the gospel with Seattle. My prayer is that the dead would come to life today. And if you're a Christian, you've been living in cyclical sin that is incongruous with your identity in Christ, that you'd see the foolishness of Lazarus after having been called out of the grave, 
to turn around and go back into the grave. Lazarus, what are you doing? That's where dead people go. You're alive now, Lazarus. Imagine how anticlimactic it would be for Jesus to call Lazarus, and Lazarus comes out of the grave and says hi, and then goes right back in. Christian, this is not why Jesus resurrected you. This is not why Jesus called you from your sin to repentance so you can go right back into it. All right, that's where dead people go, Lazarus. You're alive now. You're alive now. You see, dead people tend to make live people uncomfortable. And if you wake up yourself as a live person where dead people go, you wake up in a coffin under the ground, you, you tend to do something about that, yes? All right? You tend to burst your way through that coffin. That, this is not where I belong. I'm alive. This is where dead people go. And you start to dig your way to the surface. You don't lie there quietly and take a nap. You don't remain there in your grave. No, Christian. No, you are no longer dead. You are alive in Christ. So come up out of that grave, listen to your Savior's voice, repent from sin forevermore, and be made alive, alive, alive in Christ Jesus. Be once more filled with the Holy Spirit of God and watch those gifts that are latent within you serve the church and grow the church and impact the community, as in Highlands Community Church. Aha, I just got that. They can't wait for you to continue in your sin until you're done with it. All right, Christians are outnumbered. We need Christians to set their sin aside, wake up, go back out and be exactly who God designed you to be. No more, no more lying down in the graveyard, Christian. That's where Jesus called you from. So you repent from sin, you repent drastically. You put measures in place to secure accountability. And then as we'll see in the book of Ephesians, you establish raw accountability with people here in the body of Christ with whom you can be brutally honest and find freedom from your sin. Now, now, my skeptical friend, my skeptical friend. <laughs> there's something in your heart and you've suspected that there's more to life than your addictions. You know that when you abuse your wife, it's wrong. And that voice in your heart that tells you that scares you because that's, that's the voice of the judge of the universe to whom you will give an account. That is the judge who is calling you forward now to receive grace. Now he's a righteous judge. He will not be fooled, you understand? He knows exactly what you've done and he wields justice righteously. But what he's called you forward for is that somebody else has taken the full price for your sin. You see, you're dead. You came in here in a casket. You're dead where you sit because your sin has killed you. And the wages of your sin, the thing you get in return for the sins that you commit is death. But the gift that God offers is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this is what the Spirit of God is drawing upon you. That is the voice that you hear echoing through your tomb, Lazarus. It is the voice of Jesus, the Savior, calling you by name from your sin to repentance, from death to life, from darkness to marvelous light. This is the day that you slay your sin, pay your respects to the dead, and walk out alive. 
Are you prepared? As the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart, I wanna invite you to pray God's word with me to God. Today is the day that you, in accordance with exactly this text, you die with him so that you will live with him. You will endure so that you will reign with him. If you deny him, you know that he will deny us. But even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Today is the day that you enter into this covenant with God and receive that calling the Holy Spirit is drawing upon your heart and life right now. The Father is drawing you. Today is the day. Today is the day. So let God slay the sinner within and leave him here. Let's pray John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. Let's pray that to God. Let's pray Romans 3, 23. For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's pray Romans 6, 23. For the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray John 14, 6, the same song we've sung. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray those words to God, my skeptical friend, a skeptic no more. And then let's, oh man, from the bottoms of our hearts, let's, let's profess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead so that you would be saved. All right, pray with me. Pray with me, let God slay the dead, pay your respects and walk out because there's much ministry to do, Highlands Community Church. Let's pray. God, I believe you. I believe you, God. I believe you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. God, I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, the very breath of the living God breathing upon these bones that they would live, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and he is raising me with him. Thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection power, slaying my sin, bringing my soul to life. I was bound for hell, but Father, you've given me heaven forevermore. God, I have died with my sin. Let me live with you. Let me endure here that I may reign with you. I will not deny you lest you deny me. Lord, I will remain faithful as you are ever faithful to me. Jesus, I simply belong to you forevermore. Let my sinful self remain dead here and walk out of here alive, equipped, God, to do the work of ministry for which you have gifted me and to which you have called me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us, some of us, for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ?